This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Um, I'm going to, we're going to begin, um, and I'd like to introduce this, our speaker for the evening, and um, at that point he'll come up and he'll uh, speak for about 30, 35 minutes. We'll have some questions and answer time at the end, um, and uh, we're still hoping to finish at a relatively early hour since um, Dr. Supachai just flew in last night, and um, we hope to get him back on campus early tomorrow morning. So, <laughs> we want to do your wake. Okay, Dr. Stupich, I was born in, in, in Bangkok. He attended school at St. Gabriel's College and Triam Udam School. From 1963 to 73, under scholarship from the Bank of Thailand, he received his MA degree in econometrics, developmental planning, and his PhD in economic planning and development at the Netherlands School of Economics in Rotterdam. Dr. Subachai began his professional career at the Bank of Thailand in 1974, working initially in the research department and later in a range of departments, including the International Finance Division and the Financial Institution Supervision Development Department. He left the bank in 1986 to run for parliament and joined the government as Deputy Minister of Finance. In 1988, he moved to the Thai Military Bank, where he remained until 1992, when he was appointed senator and subsequently deputy prime minister entrusted with oversight of the country's economic and trade policy making. In 1993, he convinced the public and private sectors on the need for Thailand to accept the Uruguay round packages and consequently helped steer its ratification through parliament. His involvement in world trade issues led to his election in September of 1999 to the director generalship of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, which he took, which, and he took office in, on September 1, 2002. Upon leaving the WTO last year, he has taken on an equally daunting task, becoming Secretary General of the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development for a term of four years, which commenced September 1, 2005. In addition to his long years of public service, Dr. Subachai has published a number of books, including Educational Growth in Developing Countries, Globalization and Trade in the New Millennium, and China and the WTO, Changing China, Changing, China, Changing World Trade. We are really pleased to have Dr. Supachai with us tonight, and we welcome him to the podium. Thank you so much, uh, Judy, for your very kind introductions. And let, let me first uh, thank you, uh, Judy, for uh, the invitation that you have extended to me to be here with all our friends and colleagues uh, this evening. And uh, thanks to you and, and your colleague, Michael Keller. Uh, I'm most grateful for the work that uh, Stanford U University and its library has been doing to uh, put up an archive of all the documents, and some of them are very rare documents that uh, we, we, we have at the WTO that have not been fully systematically, digitally uh, archived uh, anywhere else, and uh, this should be a source of, uh, of great benefits for, for the public uh, at large. And 
they've completed the project, and, and I do hope that uh, the WTO members would see to it that uh, the benefits of this archive are fully exploited uh, by urgently, expeditiously de-restricting the, uh, the, the, the materials, because uh, most materials, I mean, sometime dating from 30, 40 years back, uh, some member countries still find them of confidential nature. I don't know why, but uh, most things uh, at the WTO are considered to be confidential. Uh, the members uh, of the WTO do not want uh, their trade statistics, trade agreements, or trade commitments uh, to be announced, to be disclosed so easily. They would always find some reason to, uh, to restrict the uh, distribution of the information. But uh, I hope this will change, and I have, in my time, uh, tried to convince them that uh, they can always uh, experiment with the restrictions, and uh, if they find something untowards about uh, any abuses of the information, they can always come back and, uh, and re-restrict re it uh, all over again. But uh, uh, my sincere appreciation for the work that uh, Stanford University has been doing for, for the World Trade Organization. Um, I was given uh, some liberty to be discussing uh, uh, tonight's uh, topic, uh, which would be about globalization and, and role of uh, uh, the open uh, nations in, in the process of, of globalization. I would like to say something about this process and the role of uh, the open countries uh, in this process, but also uh, let me say something about uh, the ongoing uh, trade negotiation, because as you all know, uh, the WTO is said to be uh, actually the uh, embodiment of uh, of the globalization process by keeping the markets open and try to produce the rules that can be applied all over the world uh, as common set of rules. Although, although I have moved on uh, from the World Trade Organization last year uh, to UNCTAD, uh, I still feel uh, very much uh, uh, close to what uh, people are doing at the moment, which is trying to complete the, uh, the Doha development agenda, the Doha round, uh, to complete it uh, within the foreseeable future and most preferably within this year. But I would also like to uh, uh, give you uh, some additional information from outside uh, the job that I'm doing at the moment, which uh, I thought uh, could be complementary to the kind of work that the WTO is doing. So the two of us together could uh, help to create uh, a more, I would say, a fairer uh, world, trade, world trading system, and a, a system in which uh, all countries alike could be served equally, and those who are less well endowed could also be integrated into the system to their own benefits. Um, I have uh, probably uh, best is to approach it in, in three different parts. I'm trying to read my own handwriting because my office has given me a, a, a speech to read out, but I thought uh, it might be too formal. So I've written down something else, uh, and I'm trying to read what I have written a uh, few nights ago. So bear with me <laughs> if I misread some of the things that I intend to, uh, to, uh, to speak to you. Uh, first part, uh, I, I like to discuss uh, 
the kind of trends that I thought uh, have become more positive, uh, positive uh, atmosphere for uh, third world to participate in, in the process of globalization. That's my thought. But then, uh, when I go to the second part, I would like to mention to you some of the recent events or, or remarks or policy actions by some countries that uh, do not always uh, point in the direction that, uh, that they really support uh, the process of, of liberalization and globalization. You see, when, when you talk to politicians around the world, uh, they are now well educated so that everyone knows about the need to to do trade liberalization, privatization, market reforms, and things like that. They have the same story to tell. But you, you cannot always, I have to be careful in using the words because I know that uh, this will be taped. Uh, how should I say? It's one thing to say, to pay lip services to your commitment uh, to multilateral trading regime. It's another thing to be committed in terms of action. Because if they are always true to their words, uh, to their lip services, as we say, then the round would have been completed, I would say, uh, you know, some time ago, and not to have to be dragged on like this. So uh, in, in the second part, I would like to uh, share with you some of my feelings uh, coming from various parts of the world that do not really point in the direction that uh, people are really committed in terms of, of their policy action. I would like to end with the, the, the third part, uh, with what I believe to be uh, the kind of uh, guidelines, policy guidelines, if, if you like, uh, to, to try to help address the issues. In saying that, in order to have integration of all countries into the, into the world trading system, you have to put in place a different set of policies in a way that they cannot always be a clinical solution. Uh, it, it's not always a set of uh, solution A or solution B. It, it's, a, it's a diversity of solutions that will have to be put in place in a way that uh, countries can make themselves ready to join in the fray and also to, to, to be able to benefit from being part of the, of the trading system. So these are the, the three parts that, that I, I would like to, to discuss. Um, there are a few things that uh, has, uh, have given me hope uh, when I look at the situation in the last few years. I, I joined uh, the Glen Eagles meeting last year, the, uh, the, G8, the, the G8 summit in Glen Eagles. Uh, you remember it, it was on the day that uh, London was bombed for the first time since, I think, after the Second World War. It was bombs in the underground station in a few places. And we were sitting together, you know, the G8, all these countries, G8, G7, plus Russia. Uh, the thing I want to tell you about is not about the bomb and the thing, because, uh, uh, because of the bomb uh, in London, uh, uh, Tony Blair couldn't chair the meeting. He, has, he, he came to the meeting in the morning. He said, I have to leave now, but I will be coming back. So he went, and he went back to London. But the important thing of the meeting was that it was uh, a meeting which had not only G8 sitting together as usual, but they have invited G5. Uh, G5 uh, actually indicating the five countries representing the developing world. Uh, there was India there, Brazil, Mexico, China, and South Africa. 
the five developing countries were there. This is not the first time, uh, but it happened from time to time. It happened once in, uh, in, in Okinawa, in Japan, during the time of Prime Minister Obuchi, many years ago. It happens a few, few years ago in the AVM summit uh, under the chairmanship of uh, President Chirac. And it happens again, again last year. I was not, not told what's going to happen at St. Petersburg meeting, summit of G8, whether they would again have the same formula. Now, this is important because in order to have good discussions on economic solutions to the global economic problems, you just cannot do it among the eight uh, most powerful nations politically uh, without having also uh, around the table countries that represent also the, uh, the, the major uh, parts of the, of the third world, like China, or India, Brazil, or South Africa, Mexico. So I thought it was, a good, it was a good formula. I happened to be invited because of the trade issue. Because of the trade issue. And I was most impressed because the leaders spent nearly half a day, nearly half a day, because they were supposed to be talking about the uh, Kyoto uh, Convention, supposed to be talking about the greenhouse effect, and I don't know what, environment, and debt relief, and everything. But we spent nearly half a day talking about the trade round. Can you imagine the leaders of the world, um, about, about 13 countries there, 13 leaders talking about the trade round, how to see to it that the trade rounds be brought to a finish which is timely enough for the world to benefit. Well, it gave me hope because uh, I, I gave them a very pessimistic readout of the situation back in Geneva. And I told them that we need your intervention to, uh, to support us. And they were exchanging views and uh, US President Bush was very forthcoming. At a certain period he was saying, let's Eliminate all kinds of subsidies. I said, Mr. President, are you sure you were talking about all kinds of subsidies? Have I heard you correctly? Because we're talking about elimination of export subsidies. Export subsidies. Because domestic subsidies is very difficult to eliminate. We're talking about export subsidies. He said, no, no. And he was pointing to uh, President Chirac. If, if he agree with me, if Europe agree with me, U.S. can meet the challenge of eliminating all kinds of subsidies. So this is, this is really uh, a great, you know, uh, statement to make, and uh, he was serious about it. And I thought, if if the trade ministers would have heard their leaders, if the negotiators or ambassador in Geneva would have heard this, this is great message. Then then we can secure the the round in time. But of course, uh, leaders are leaders, and ministers are ministers, and trade negotiators are trade negotiators. Um, the message was passed on to the negotiators, but. Uh, like they say, I mean, something got lost in the translation. You know, it's, it's not always passed on to the, uh, the negotiators. This is one of the basic problems. I have said all this uh, just to impress upon you that at the moment, in spite of all the bad news about the round and everything, that is, that is a serious, I would say, sincere effort from the size of the, some of the most powerful countries in the world to commit themselves to bringing around the open countries to participate in the way we are going to guide the process of globalization in the world. I think this is, this is a great move. During the end of the Uruguay round, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, the final conclusion was driven by the fact that the court, you know, the four countries, US, EU, 
Canada, Japan, they sat down together and they said, okay, this is a deal. We are fed up with all these differences and it's been going on for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Too long already. So they sat together, they did the Black House Accord, I don't know what, they did many things together, agriculture negotiation, and they said, okay, among themselves they finished the round. And then they turned around to the rest of the uh, GATT community in those days and say, okay, you take it or leave it. If you don't like it, you don't have to join us. If you like it, you join us. And of course, in those days, people were not very active in joining the debates, the discussion in the round. So they all took it. This was 10 years ago, and the court deciding the final so-called so protocol signed on at Marrakesh meeting in Morocco. These days, today, the key countries that are now again uh, joining in the, in the finalization of the package. Another court, but a different composition of the court. Four countries again making the group. But now US, EU, and, and no more Canada, no more Japan. US, EU, Brazil, and India. So these are the, the court, the four parties that are now trying to conclude the round among themselves. So you can see time has changed and uh, I would say that the participation of the developing countries in the determination of the future directions of uh, liberalization and therefore globalization is now being chaired the way that people try to determine the future direction, being chaired between advanced countries and, and, and developing countries. I can go on and, and give you, uh, again, uh, uh, different perspectives. If you look at the, the, the groupings that arise in Geneva, you know, in Geneva we have all kinds of groups. We have light-minded groups, we have uh, Bori Watch group, they name all kinds of restaurants or, or hotels where they've been meeting. Uh, and there's a group of G, G20, G10, G13, G33, I don't know, all kinds of groups. But the most famous group that has emerged from the Cancun, the fifth ministerial meeting in Cancun in 2003, the most famous, or sometimes people call them infamous group, which is a group of 20. Of 20 developing countries, now must be more than 20, I presume, led by Brazil, India, China. And this is a different kind of exercise altogether. You remember towards the end of the Uruguay round, the round was decided by the court Two years ago, two years ago before we went to a Cancun meeting, for the first time that I have seen in my period of being part of the negotiations uh, uh, at this level, we've seen a joint paper, a joint position on agriculture between US and EU. Can you imagine? This is a joint paper produced uh, in June or July uh, in 2003, before we went to the Cancun meeting, which is supposed to be, I think it was in September, October, September, I think. Never before had there been a joint position, a common position on agriculture, because as you can see, EU and US have a lot of differences on agriculture. And not in the least because EU has three times the level of subsidies as the US. And US has different kinds of interventions in the, in the agricultural uh, sectors. So, the first time, and, and if this would have happened 10 years ago, this would have clinched the whole deal. Because then the rest would have to fall in lines and, uh, and agree with the deal. But this was just like a lightning rod. It created all kinds of, of criticism, 
um, reactions, uh, new papers coming from all sides. I thought it was very healthy in a way that all of the participating countries are really participating in the negotiation. And no one and no group of countries can determine now the final positions. So this is another example in which I, I thought I saw some positive movement in that uh, there is a chairing of, 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 of positions, of chairing of uh, interests, and, and also in the chairing of, of burden. If you look at the recent, the recent um, UN summit uh, in September last year, uh, uh, which, is, uh, which, is, which is a rare occasion, and the document, the outcome document, uh, the so-called the summit outcome document, of course, you'll be pleased to see that uh, there's been a lot of paragraphs and, uh, and pages spent on uh, the so-called Millennium Development Goals and development perspectives. Uh, quite encouraging, although, I mean, uh, people still feel that uh, more could have been said, but at least to, to, to my mind, uh, the, the issues that they address, uh, for example, they address in, 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 uh, in the so-called development um, uh, issues. For the first time, things like uh, the, the, the ODAs, the, uh, the OOC uh, Development uh, uh, Assistant, they address the issue of debt relief, the issues of science, technology, investment, you know, key areas in, 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 uh, uh, in, develop, uh, in development strategy. So it was actually pleasing to know that the international communities, uh, members of the international communities are mindful of the need to reach the, the MDG goals. And they were so serious as to the, for the first time they said they agree in the summit that let's not have a loose goal because by 2015, which is supposed to be the end date for the goals of MDGs, we are halfway there. Uh, some countries have actually achieved the goals. Many countries have not yet, uh, you know, they're, they're not anywhere near the goal. Let's have a serious exercise in asking all participating countries to come up with their own national plans so that we can really see what are you, where are you? are you? Are you in the right direction? Are you moving just backwards and things like that? So for the first time, even within the UN system, which is known for the wrong things, uh, like bureaucracies and some of the uh, problems and, and corruption, things like that, we push for this uh, uh, really serious commitment at the national level. So again, uh, I would say that uh, the role of the European countries is being recognized in the process to meet the MDGs. And the last point that I want to raise in this first part is that if you look into the last three or four years of uh, trade development, uh, economic uh, activities in the last four years at the global level. This has been four magnificent years. This has been four years of continuous growth at the global level. Three or four percentage, uh, four percentage points of, of, of uh, global growth, 10, 20 percent of uh, trade expansion in real terms around seven to eight percent. Been a time in which the European countries are gaining more foothold for the first time that African countries, sub-Saharan countries are beginning to have positive export, positive growth, Africa has been growing on the level of five, four to five percent for the last three or four years, quite unprecedented, quite unprecedented. The level of participation of countries in the global trading system has grown to the level of around 40, 30 percent, 30 percent of the total market share 
uh, coming from the, the third world. Uh, and the trade among the southern, the south, among the uh, developing countries has been growing, and the share of, of trade among the, the south uh, has been growing to the level of nearly 40%, and, and increasing at a rate much higher than the average rate of, of global growth for, for trade volume. So, if I go by all this kind of uh, uh, arrangement and recent trends, then one should, one should be encouraged and should be greatly, uh, uh, I would say, uh, completely heartened by this, this process and, and new arrangement in the, in the global perspective. So things are supposed to be moving in the right direction. Now I come to my, uh, my second part, which uh, um, uh, different kind of perspectives uh, begin to, to emerge. Um, there has been uh, some, recent, uh, some recent surveys done by the so-called uh, uh, an agency called German Marshall Fund, highly respectable uh, research institution. They've done a global worldwide surveys on, on uh, how the opinions of, of the public on, on trade liberalization and negotiation. And the disappointing result is that uh, in, in major parts of the world, in the United States, in, in the European Union, there is a growing trend of uh, uh, a sort of a rejection uh, of the ongoing trade liberalization. There is uh, a definite uh, uh, resentment of, uh, of more liberalization uh, in, in areas of trade. And this is, this is results in the United States, results in, uh, in, uh, in, in Europe. Um, we are seeing uh, also the kind of trends in, uh, in Europe that you certainly are not surprised, but this is not uh, mainly in trade, but in terms of national policies that are, are worse to uh, kind of common position, uh, elimination of border impediments. Uh, you've seen few merger cases in Europe, in the, in, the, in the financial areas that have been rejected by national governments. You've seen merger cases uh, between non-European union, non-European uh, companies and European companies that have been rejected, in, particularly in, the, in areas of, of, of steel, and energy. Uh, United States has some problem with energy cases, the part of the part uh, management uh, activities, things like that. So what we are seeing at the moment is that European countries, companies, corporations, transnational corporations are beginning to learn the ropes of globalization and begin to participate more in the global activities and try to try to penetrate markets. Uh, of more advanced countries. But of course they can do it by taking over you know, some of the companies. But they are not allowed to do this at the moment. And so the so-called so second generation of globalization, which has more or less what somebody in, I think here in the United States called globalization with an Asian image, is not going to take place easily. So we are hearing a lot of, hearing a lot of complaints coming from these developing countries that are having their own TNCs going into the world and trying to, you know, to, to, to trade and, and to take over some of the companies as the 
advanced country or Western uh, TNCs have been doing uh, in, in the past few decades in going to the third world and trying to take over some of the companies, which is a healthy trend. And particularly in energy areas, you see very active firms coming from particularly China and India going to various parts of the world. They want to, they want to trade, they want to own, they want to secure the, 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 the commodities, the energy products, and they're able to do more. You are seeing a lot of ICT industry coming out of Asia, going all across the world just to have, uh, partly just to be involved in more research and partly to secure some more markets. And in many other areas, in the transportation areas, in the healthcare areas, in tourism areas, hotel management, but this is being blocked uh, uh, a little bit. Now, within within US, uh, uh, this is nothing new, but uh, the attitude in the Congress at the moment seems to be driven by more domestic uh, concerns, uh, probably elections coming up, uh, probably uh, the difficulties in having to go through this uh, jobless growth or jobless recovery, I don't know. It, it's, it's something which is ingrained into the, into the, into the thinking of uh, the Congress in a way that U.S. is not really benefiting from the multilateral process at the moment. So why should U.S. be involved? And a few recent remarks by key uh, uh, people from, from the Congress uh, did not actually uh, uh, emphasize the, uh, the, the kind of involvement that U.S. administration is, is trying to demonstrate, which is to support the round to move to a complete uh, 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 completion as soon as possible. We are seeing countries in Europe uh, uh, using terms like national industry that will have to be protected, uh, the resurgence of uh, the concept of uh, economic patriotism, in the beginning, when I first heard the word, I didn't understand what it means to be patriotic. Is patriotic, but what is economic patriotism? And, and gradually, we begin to see that it, it means something along the line of, uh, you know, this is a new kind of protectionist measures. Um, we are seeing uh, uh, some of the global think tanks, like uh, the World Bank, uh, coming out with new research results pointing in the directions that uh, some of the past calculations of the results of trade liberalization have been a little bit exaggerated. When I was back at the WTO, my colleagues at the WTO were very much accustomed to using, to quoting World Bank figures. You see, it's, uh, the trade round would finish by so-and-so year, the benefits for the trade round would be a few hundred billions for the economies, and they go on, and the range is between 100 to a five or six hundred billion. I said, don't use those figures because the range is a few hundred billions. Can you imagine a few hundred billions? And they're too large to me, too large. So don't quote those figures. These days they have been reducing and reducing and gradually bringing it down to more realistic assessment, which is far, far smaller than where we started off. So, I mean, this, uh, people, people who, used to, who used to resent the, the round negotiations are now you know, being backed up by the new uh, new, new calculations and my colleagues in the NGO civil society, they're coming back to me they're saying, look, I mean, you see, we have warned you about this I said, well, see, that's why I never quote to you the size of the, 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 the positive consequences of the, of the round as to how much benefit how much more trade it will be created because it depends on so many factors that are conditioned upon so many different uh, circumstances in, in different parts of the world but now we confirm that 
in certain areas, uh, we cannot ascertain really the, uh, the definite level of, of benefits. And in, in, many, in many parts of the world, uh, the benefits are quite uneven. Uh, and, and we have to accept that. Countries are not, are not prepared to, to, to take part, are not prepared to implement some of the agreements if there are going to be agreements now. And some countries might lose out. Of course, we have losers and gainers in certain different industries. But it might be so that in some countries, they, are, they might be looser in agriculture, they might be looser in, in industries, they might be looser in, in, in services. So there might be economies uh, that may not really have real stakes uh, in the round, and so we have to be careful. Um, we are now wit witnessing the ongoing so-called UN reform. We have two different levels of UN reform going on at the moment. One is at the level of the UN uh, as, an is, as, as a global institution, uh, which is the, uh, the, the new direction that uh, the members would like to give the UN to be more effective, to be more responsible for some key areas. And the key areas that are being emphasized at the moment at the, uh, at the uh, global level of the UN reform are mainly related to areas of security concerns and human rights concerns. Yes, like I mentioned, there have been a lot of mentionings of the development, uh, there have been writings been mentioned about development concerns, but they are not spelled out in clear and operational terms as those targets in the areas of securities and human rights. So a lot of us who are working in the uh, development areas uh, have become a little bit uh, worried that the global reform of the UN system might push UN in the direction of, of course, uh, much needed in, uh, in human rights, securities, uh, environment, social issues, but might marginalize UN in the way that we can deal, we can deal uh, with development issues. Because the kind of new reallocation of jobs to be done as part of the globalization management would be something along the line that the World Bank should be completely in charge of development issues. The World Trade Organization should be in charge of trade. And UN should be in charge of social issues, like UNICEF for children, or health for the WHO, and things like that. And UN AIDS, deal with AIDS and things like that. So a little bit uh, less so on the uh, development side. And this is, this is disconcerting. We all hope that uh, ultimately uh, there would be a right balance uh, to be struck with development to be included. At the level of management of the UN system, there seems to be some effort to drive it in the directions that uh, we were told that there will be new clusters of the, 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 the work that we are doing, new clusters. Now, we are told, I've, I've been told, I read from the, the UN Secretary General report uh, investing in the UN that there might be six, seven seven or eight clusters. We don't know as yet what kind of cluster would be. A cluster according to health care, according to social, economic uh, responsibility, cluster according to development or trade or whatever. But the idea was that the task of a Secretary General of the UN has been so overloaded by so many different reports and, and agencies working in so many fields. They want to have a rationalization so that there will be new appointments I don't know, at the level of, uh, well, there is a deputy secretary general who can be more in charge of the executive work 
that he can he can take away some of the loads of, of work from the Secretary General. This is a concern because when people talk about clustering, if if they mean coherence of work, I would be fine with it. We will all be pleased because we need more coherence in the UN system. And we need more coherence between the UN system and those who are outside the UN. That is much needed. But when you talk about cluster, it means that who is the question that arises is that who is going to manage whom? Where are you going to be clustered with? If you are in Geneva, I mean, when we are in Geneva. Angkat is in Geneva. We, we have small office in New York, so we don't have the kind of uh, political uh, lobbying group in New York that can always back up our position. Although, of course, the countries uh, that know of Angkat work, they can, they can help to, to lobby or to do the uh, kind of uh, supporting uh, uh, task that, that, that we would need in New York. But when you are so far away in Geneva, we do, we do technical, technical tasks. And political lobbying is not our, is not our, uh, our business. So, and I, I would not encourage my people, my colleagues, to do any political lobbying. But when, when, when decision, final decisions are made by, by political entities in New York, I think we have to be a little bit uh, careful and uh, that, that we are a bit concerned, I think justifiably so. Because from time to time, I've seen in the past that some decisions uh, that uh, have actually resulted in the uh, reallocation of tasks among the UN agencies have not always been uh, the right approach. I keep complaining, for example, on one area, which is the LDCs, the least of countries work. It used to be done in Geneva uh, within the, uh, uh, the Angtat because we, we are the one who deal, been working with the LDCs all along. But some years ago, uh, as a result of a summit on LDCs, they have created a new unit uh, in New York and taken away some parts of our LDCs uh, resources from Geneva, placed in New York to do the so-called advocacy political work and leave the bulk of the technical work and analysis and research in Geneva with half of the people. And I find this a little bit strange to understand, but I am a little bit afraid that things like this again may, may occur. And last point, but not in the least, uh, the, uh, the slow process of uh, the round negotiations. And uh, as we move along from year to year, it seems that, uh, of course, that the, the target is agriculture, uh, first and foremost. But of course, another key target is de development issues. But as I have been following and trying to facilitate and encourage and, re and direct and redirect some of the directions, it seems that in the areas of development dimensions, there has not been that kind of serious commitments as we saw in, 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 in 2001, 2002, and 2003. Of course, there have been emergence of groups like G20s and been talks about cotton issues, been talks about spatial differential treatment and things like that. But the kind of agreements that could have been reached was not there. Was not there. Um, I don't want to bother you with all the details, but uh, we seem to have slipped. And only brought back, only brought back because at the ministerial meeting in Hong Kong, we intended to have an agreement on the numerical targets, what we call modalities, to reduce tariffs, to reduce subsidies for agriculture and industrial production. That was supposed to be done in, 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 in Hong Kong for the sixth ministerial meeting. When people know, realize that that could not be achieved, they move away from those numerical targets into some key, 
let's say they call it key development dimension. First, uh, to give the so-called duty-free and quota-free access to goods originating from the RDCs. And second, to determine the final date of the elimination of export subsidies. And third, they gave some good, nice uh, words about cotton, but not much of, no, no firm commitments. So they replaced some of the difficult issues, agriculture, industry, with some niceties in the development area. But even the niceties in the development areas are not fully uh, what people expected. For example, in the duty and quota-free access, they say we give it to 97%, 97% of the goods, not 100%. Why, 90%, why 97%? Because there seems to be some least developed countries that are deemed to be uh, of, the, of the level which is probably higher than LDCs and uh, they are too competitive in certain industries. Some of the advanced countries do not want to give them the kind of duty and quota-free access to their market. So, and, and this is, again, an incomplete solution. The agreement uh, to do the uh, elimination of uh, uh, export subsidies, it was supposed to be uh, uh, agreed uh, on 2010, I thought, and now they've shifted to 2015 or something like that, which is, which is not really in, answer, in, in response to the need of the European countries, because this is something that is going to happen anyway. It is not going to cost anybody anything, because EU has been putting in place policies that would have to eliminate export subsidies, because they cannot live with this, the level of export subsidy they are doing at the moment. So they have to do it willy-nilly. Automatically, they have to do it anyway. So it's not a big task. But they shift it from 2010 to 2000, I think, uh, 2015. So again, I mean, uh, this has come uh, in place of the kind of key market access solutions that we all need to determine the kind of development dimension of the round that we all need. This is market access. Even subsidies cannot measure up to the market access solution because market access is really the key concrete areas uh, for development gains for the developing countries. So these are, these are the, the trends that do not seem to go along the same line as the, uh, the first set of, of trends that I have alluded to that seems to be more positive. This seems to be quite contradictory to uh, contradicting the, 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 the trends. Now, uh, last point and I will end. Uh, how, do we, how, how do we sort out these sort of things? What is it going to be the right direction? How, how are we going to tackle this? issues of having ongoing globalization, which we cannot stop anyway. Um, we used to discuss uh, in Geneva about these French uh, uh, satirical notes from the, from the 19th century uh, French economist by the name of Frédéric Bastiat, who used to, to write some satires about the petitions submitted by French candle candle makers. If you read this piece, candle makers in France in the 19th century uh, send petition to the parliament asking them to stop to block out the sun because they think this is an uh, unfair competition from the sun because the sun shining too much the candles cannot be sold so <laughs> I compare the process of globalization because we cannot stop the sun and nor can we stop the, uh, the process of globalization it has to go on but how do we, how do we deal with, with these issues in which um, we are seeing really the right kind of arrangement 
we're seeing the process driven not only by the advanced countries, developed countries, but participation of, uh, by the open countries as well. But it seems that there are different other trends that uh, are, are countering uh, this positive side. Um, the, first, the first things that we are thinking, and particularly in Angtat, I'm in better position to handle this because at the WTO, uh, you are driven by the members. Members tell you to negotiate, you go negotiate. Members tell you you have to finish here and there, go and try and finish here and there. And Angtat, uh, in spite of some micromanaging effort by the members, they, they, they're less, uh, they don't drive with you because in WTO we used to say we have 149 drivers, you know, sitting trying to drive the car. And we, it, it just, just impossible to drive the car. Here, I think we, we have more or less the consensus that trade, trade is, 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 not the, is, not, is, is not the end in itself. Uh, we have to look at trade as a, as a means to, uh, to enable the right kind of development strategy uh, to produce sustainable results. And the solutions um, that we can find for develop, de development strategy are not always one-size-fits-all solutions. We have to be able to tailor-make the solutions to different fits in different countries. And we need to be thinking in terms of sequencing of policies more so, that countries are not always in the position to afford the implementation of various policies at the same time. So you have to sequence, they have to have more time, they have to have the time to, to digest the parliaments, we have to have time to work on some of the issues. So at Antat, we are trying to, to deliver uh, technical cooperation in a way that people talk a lot about ownership. It's, not, it's, 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 it's never been true. I mean, we talked a lot about ownership. It has not really been driven that way, that there's more ownership because the, the, the technical cooperation is responding to the, the demand from the, from the beneficiary countries. More and more because of the lack of regular budget, uh, or regular budgeting uh, commitment, uh, like Angtat work we are doing, we depend a lot, uh, at least uh, more than half of our regular budget on extra budgetary sources to drive forward our technical assistance program. So we are, we are in the hands of the donors. They tell us to do this, not to do that. We like this country, we don't like those countries. You do work in this area, in these issues, don't do the other issues, and so on and so forth. So the more, the more we are driven into uh, be, being more dependent on extra budgetary sources, the more we can, the less we can respond to, to, the, to the demand from the beneficiary countries, less ownership. But we keep saying this is ownership because, you know, I mean, we know best. Uh, I don't think donors know best. I don't think Antat know best. Recipient countries, they know best. But they cannot say anything much. They get the money, they like it, they, you know, do something good in certain areas, build some, some ports or some roads, or I don't know what, some industry somewhere, they do it. And then after a few years, they just say the industry cannot flourish because there are no other things. I see villages in Africa which used to thrive in certain, in certain industries that are now becoming deserted because they just cannot go on because there's a lack of parallel policies to, 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 to keep them alive. Um, this, is, this is one area in which we need to really... When we look at the UN reform, uh, the other day we had a joint meeting with the, uh, the new panel that has been set up by the UN Secretary General on the UN-wide coherence reform panel that is co-shared by the Prime Minister of Pakistan, Prime Minister of uh, Norway, and uh, Prime Minister of, uh, of Mozambique. Um, I raised this issue, and I budgetary system, 
is not put back into the old system of having more regular budget so that multilateral organization can drive forward their policies, their research policies in response to the needs of the, uh, the open countries, the beneficiary countries, we cannot even dream of, 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 of trying to respond to the, the, the demands in, in, in those countries. So we must be able to mobilize more funds. If people, uh, if, if, if they think uh, we're not uh, efficient enough to do the thing, then they, they, can, they don't have to give the, 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 the funds. But if they give the funds, uh, they should, they should allow the, the, the funds. But if they give the funds, uh, they, should, they should allow us to set up a sort of a global trust fund in a way that the trust fund use, the policies adopted, should be along the line that we have to meet with the with demand and to be respons responding to the, if the, the practical problem, not to be just painting the pictures of the world and, and try to show how much fund we will need or uh, to, to paint the pictures of better be more trade, better, better development and, and this sort of thing. People now believe or they know they have their own ideas. But we need to make people ready. What we are now trying to sell is that Antat, my organization, we are best equipped to work on capacity building. And when you are given market access without capacity, you can forget it. I mean, the trade rounds and how many trade rounds you can go through, if they give more, they open up more market access without countries being able to, to adopt policies that can enhance capacity building. You can have everything but ARM process from the EU. You can have ACUA, the, uh, the African growth and trade uh, opportunities. But countries cannot benefit because they don't have things to trade. They don't have capacity to trade. They don't have logistical capacity. They have no means to transport things. So this is one area. The second area is that uh, we need to be, to be more comprehensive in the way we look at the trade and development issues. So, we have embarked at Angtat upon a new project, which is to um, uh, set up the Trade and Development Index. And this we worked, we've been working with Professor Lawrence Klein here uh, to put up for the first time the Trade and Development Index to determine how we can config configurate uh, trade and development policies that would ultimately really resolve in in the real gains uh, when, when trade policies are applied uh, within the development strategy. We try to look at interrelationship between trade and developments and, and the kinds of policies that should be in place so that trade and development can really be uh, a synergy in, 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 in themselves. And we have found out many interesting ideas, particularly the most important thing, and this is just beginning. We want to develop this further. We want to expand the, uh, the number of countries involved and we are trying to rank countries according to their trade and development index uh, performance. And we have found out that uh, in addition to only trade liberalization, there needs to be an array of, of, of commitments uh, uh, of other factors that will be determining whether countries could be able to, to benefit from trade liberalization. There will be areas of uh, macroeconomic discipline, good governance, uh, infrastructure for trade, skill of human resource, institutional uh, capacity, investment in health and education. So there's a large array of, 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 of uh, policies that need to be in place so that together they can really make trade useful for development. Even China is found to be quite lowly rated uh, around the, the ranking of 51 out of the something more than 100 countries. China is not 
really one of the best performers in the in this index, and which shows that that the way China is making gains in, into trade this day is not really based on really the strong and, and institutional backup and, and substantive backup that China is supposed to have. That's why uh, there is a great urgency for China to be doing this new generation of reforms. So China has done one generation, the first generation where they came into the WTO, which was basically to, to put the trade uh, trade uh, policies, trade laws into, into, into practice. But now they have to do the real kind of, 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 of uh, reform, which is to open up the market, uh, to reform the market economies, to have the rules that can be applied throughout the whole of China and not to be, to be uh, maneuvered by uh, provincial authorities. The third point uh, that we are now working on is how to help countries diversify uh, their products. Because if you remember the work in the past of Angtad, is that, uh, of course, if you want to trade, if you want to have the European countries trade, they are doing that in some commodities already. Some have some commodities, some have more commodities than others, but the, the, what, what we call the terms of trade effects in the past few decades has been always uh, at worst, uh, at worst, they have always adversely affect uh, the, the, the European countries because the prices of, co of commodities, uh, in comparison to prices of, uh, of manufactured products, have always been uh, declining more so or rising, but rising at the rates that are not be able to catch up with the uh, rises in price in, uh, in, in manufactured products. Only in the last few years did uh, we see the kind of catching up process of, uh, of term of trade. But so. This is why they need to have diversification. And we've seen that countries that are totally dependent on agricultural trade alone can never, can never actually uh, sort out their, their problem with the, with the joblessness uh, uh, problems. They, they have to diversify into, into non-agricultural uh, industries. So we are trying to find ways and means to work in these areas in, in countries in Africa and also even in countries in, in the Middle East which have become so dependent on the energy uh, sector. They need also to diversify. The third point um, is uh, the work that we are doing uh, uh, to accompany trade policy, which is investment policy. How to do investment policies in a way that investment policies are not just ex uh, inactive or passive policies, meaning that countries look only at the flows of funds, counting only the number of dollars and cents flowing into countries and say, we are very pleased because we, we've been very successful in attracting all this fund. What we are trying to say is that it's, it, it matters to have the amount of funds, but it matters more to be looking at the quality of investment uh, coming into your own countries. Because with globalization going on, I have heard many stories, and we've seen many stories, that uh, most of the polluting industries are being relocated to the poorer countries because there it's cheaper to dispose of the, of the, of the waste materials and, and, and you destroy environment there cheaply. So, Apart from that, you need also labor-intensive kind of investment and things like that. You have to diversify away from energy sector, basic commodities. So we need to be looking at the quality, not only at the quantity of, of investment. And this is the work that we are doing at the moment. And because of the rise of the need for science technology, for research and development to be part of the, de the development strategy, we are now trying to put together a sort of policies that should be able to attract investment in a way that at the same time with investment comes also research and development, which we've seen in China, uh, uh, in, in Korea, in, in Malaysia, some, in some parts, of, uh, some parts of Asia. 
And, and this is taking place mostly in Asia, but not in the rest of the world. I mean, relocation of investment from more advanced countries into less advanced countries with accompanying research and development activities. Um, we are looking, and this is a final now, uh, we are looking at how to address this, this trade round in a way that whatever the trade round may go, in whatever direction, because it may end end of this year, it may end next year, it may, never, it, 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 it may take a few more years to, to complete, because as it stands at the moment, uh, well, the, we seem to be in some difficulties, because the April deadline has been missed. Okay, okay we can miss deadlines, but the July deadline is another deadline to be watched. If by July, if by July there are no numerical targets for modalities for agriculture and industry on the table, then I would think that the end of the round by the end of this year, just you can kiss it goodbye because there, there will be no end because people will need to work on the scheduling process and everything, verification. It's a long process after agreeing on the, on the numerical uh, statistics, uh, numerical targets and modalities. What we would like to do at the moment is that whatever happens in the round, we need countries to be able to equip themselves with the right kind of preparation so that if the round finishes in time, they can make use of the round. If the round doesn't finish in time, they can upgrade their capacity so they can participate more effectively in the ongoing uh, trade negotiation and also in the, uh, in, the, in the trade activities around the world. So we have conceived of this program which is called Aid for Trade. Aid for Trade. This is a program which has been uh, proposed first by the bank and the fund and now being taken up by the World Trade Organization. It is something that ANGTAD has been also participate. It has the intention to address the issues of adjustment, implementation of commitments, and also to build up capacity. So adjustment because countries, when they, when, when, when they take up the, the new commitments, they have to make adjustments. They have to relocate, retrain people. They, they, for example, countries that used to de, uh, depend on preferential treatments, with, with the loss of preferences, they have to be able to fight the, the new, the new competi competition war. Secondly, we need uh, the facility to help implementation because implementation, as we saw from the Uruguay round, implementation of intellectual property rights agreement has been costly. So there will be new implementation for new agreements in the round. There will be trade facilitation agreement. There will be probably new agreements in the area of subsidies and the dumping thing, new rules. So we need to have some funds to help facilitate the, the implementation. And we need uh, funds to help uh, address the issue of supply capacity building. So this is an ongoing work to add on to the round. There is some concern that this aid for trade might be linked to the achievement of the round. People might sometimes be thinking, look, I mean, we probably can't go very far into agricultural liberalization, so let's replace it some part with aid for trade so that people go home, be quiet. You're getting something anyway. Don't, don't expect to get everything you, you ask for in agriculture. Now, this is something that we have to avoid. Aid for trade must be addition to the round, must be complementary to the round, and whatever the round, wherever it goes, we need to be able to uh, implement the aid for trade uh, regime uh, program uh, as early as possible and the commitments of billions of, of funds to this aid for trade and I think this is, this is better than just saying that we're just trying to meet a target of ODA of 0.7% or, or 1% I don't know which is not going to be uh, achieved in, in foreseeable future but this is something which is targeted 
really targeted to help bring in trade policies in, in, into the mainstream of development strategy. This is actually all that I, I have to say. So uh, in actual fact is that in spite of the trends that we are seeing that should afford better participation, more active participation of the developing countries, we are seeing some, some new generations of changes, globalization, reforms, that might not facilitate, might not uh, enable uh, countries to come into the picture easily. And, and they, they might be saddled with some additional problems, including the uncertainty of, of the trade round. So uh, we need to be able, from the side of, of ANGTAT, which is not involved in negotiation, to put in the kind of assistance that should tide over the difficulties for the developing countries at the time that they are trying to position themselves to benefit from the round, to negotiate, and at least to, to, to prepare themselves in case the round finishes in time. So uh, uh, this is a message that I, I would like to leave with you. And uh, just a, a quote which I like uh, from President John F. Kennedy, uh, who used to say something like, uh, if a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. So this is the effort that we have to, 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 uh, to reach the target of making trade work to help the poor of the world. Thank you for your attention. Thank The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.